0: I appreciate them because I know that I could start singing whenever I want and they'll catch up to me. And um, I proved them true uh, this morning. Last year, Donald Johnson, who is a Christian evangelist, uh, wrote a book called How to Talk to Skeptics, An Easy-to-Follow Guide for Natural Conversation and Effective Apologetics. It's a useful book, it's a helpful book, uh, and e- even though, and you might be surprised to know this, uh, to learn this, only 5%, they did a survey a few years ago, only 5% of unchurched Americans describe themselves as, as antagonistic or hostile to the gospel. O- only 5%. Uh, most unchurched Americans... Uh, describe themselves at least as open to talking to somebody about the gospel, and most of them actually say that they don't know what it is. 82%, this is another statistic from that survey, 82% of unchurched people would attend church, would at least consider going to church if someone invited them. And 11% of unchurched Americans are interested in talking about the gospel, they want to talk about it with somebody. I wonder how many of those 82% of people who would come to church, if someone asked, live in your neighborhood. Or how many of those 11% who are interested in talking about the gospel work where you work. But there's still those 5%, and if the the statistic is right too, there's 21% who are somewhat resistant. So Johnson wrote this book, and in his book he wrote, uh, he lists... Six reasons why people reject Christianity. I, I don't think this is based on a informal study that he's done, but Donald Johnson over the years has talked to thousands of people who are not followers of Jesus Christ, and this is a, a, a summation of some of his observations, the top reasons why he observes in people's lives they reject Christianity. I wonder how well you know how the people around you who aren't followers of Christ, I wonder how well you know how they think. I wonder if your list, if you had to make a list, if it would match Johnson's. Here, here they are. Here, the first uh, reason is Christians behaving badly. <laughs> Christians behaving badly. People reject Christianity because of, well, in a simpler term, hypocrisy. Uh, let me quote from uh, Johnson for a moment. People who call themselves Christians can be jerks. There is just no way around this fact. From sign-wielding preachers of hate to motorists with fish stickers who flip obscene hand gestures, believers don't always show much gentleness and compassion. This turns people away from Christianity. After authoring a book called The End of Faith, Sam Harris was motivated to write his other book, Letter to a Christian Nation, in part because he received so many letters telling him how wrong he was not to believe in God. In fact, he says... This is ironic as Christians, uh, Sam Harris said this, the most hostile of these communications have come from Christians. This is ironic as Christians generally imagine that no faith imparts the virtues of love and forgiveness more effectively than their own. The truth is that many who claim to be transformed by Christ's love are deeply, even murderously, intolerant of criticism. The second reason people reject Christianity, heartbreak. Heartbreak. You could have listed this, couldn't you? You, you don't have to live long in this earth to experience pain. And when you see one of your parents die, or maybe one of your little brothers or sisters gravely ill, or you experience in your life a lot of abuse and deprivation, that is hard to reconcile with the book that claims to, to come from a God who is both completely sovereign and loving. Heartbreak. His third reason why people reject Christianity might surprise you. It's not one that I would put on my list immediately, uh, but this is from his experience. Here it is, fatherlessness. Fatherlessness. He says when a father is absent or a father is present but defective, that's his word, defective in some way, that is they're abusive or cowardly or um, uh, uninvolved, He says, that plays a major role in young men becoming atheists. I I want to put that on a list, but it makes complete sense to me. Reason number four, social pressure, social pressure. There are places in the United States still, there's a lot of places in the United States still where there is social pressure, we live in one of them, social pressure to be involved in some way or related in some way to a faith community. There's a lot of places in the United States like that. But that is not the case everywhere. In fact, it's not the case most often among the educated, the highly educated, the wealthy, the urban, uh, the media influencers. You live in a community where there is social pressure to be involved in in some way or at least attached in in some way to a faith community. But you read newspapers and you watch news and you uh, absorb television shows and movies written and produced by people who don't share that thought at all social pressure pressure number five the cost of discipleship the cost of discipleship people reject christianity because it costs too much to be a christian when i was in seminary we were highly encouraged to read a book by a philosopher by the name of mortimer adler mortimer adler wrote a book called how to read a book it's a very good book it's worth reading You have to read it, though, first. Well, never mind. Uh, And Mortimer Adler became a Christian when he was in his 80s. And he didn't convert for a particular reason. He said that converting would require a radical change in the way of my life, a basic alteration in the direction of my day-to-day choices, as well as in the ultimate objectives to be sought or hoped for. The simple truth of the matter is that I did not wish to live up to being a genuinely religious person. These last two reasons, I think number four and five are related to number six. They, they, they kind of are tied together. Why else do people reject Christianity? Sex? Well, specifically, the Bible's teaching about sex. This is part of the social pressure. Uh, this is one of the chief prices to be paid in the cost of discipleship. Can we really trust a book? Can we really trust a faith that argues? There should be no sexual activity of any kind outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage. Why is God so repressed? Why is He so regressive? Why does God hate pleasure so much? Why is he so close-minded when it comes to sex? Now these are Donald Johnson's uh, observations. And what I find interesting about this list of why people reject Christianity, the list he comes, uh, the reasons he encounters most often in his ministry, is that none of them have to do with the truth of the claims of Christianity. None of them say uh, whether or not that, that we think the Bible is, is true, whether it's historically trustworthy, whether the events in it actually happened. Now, that's part of the issue. He he deals with that in other parts of the book. But I don't think that intellectual objections like that are at the heart of why many people reject Christianity. In fact, this morning, I want to show you a passage of Scripture. I want to unfold a story where the supernatural truth of the work of Jesus Christ was indisputable, uh, but a group of men, a group of educated, powerful, intellectual men... Uh, blatantly, willfully rejected what was plain for everybody to see. Uh, they, they rejected Jesus for a reason that I didn't list, and Johnson didn't list either, but I'll mention it. They rejected Jesus because they were stubborn. They were hard-hearted. Uh, they could not deny the supernatural reality of the message about Jesus Christ, but they refuse to acknowledge its implications. The story that I want to direct your attention to is in Acts chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 4 if you would. Um, Acts chapter 4. Every week I know that there are people in the congregation who have not yet crossed the line of faith. And maybe, uh, I already mentioned one of the reasons, one of the two reasons, why you have not yet crossed the line of faith, my hope today is what I want to do is I want to help you make sure that the same the reason that you haven't crossed the line of faith is not the same as these men in Acts chapter 4. I want to take that off the table. I want to take stubbornness or hard-heartedness off the table. Or if at least that's you're going to go with that, I want you to at least move in that direction with your eyes wide open. Now, what we have here in Acts chapter 4 is the third scene of a four-scene act. We, we started talking about this a few weeks ago. Uh, act 1, or scene 1, Peter and John move into the temple, and on their way in, they heal a man who has been sitting by a door of the temple, begging for about 30 years. And everybody in town knows this man, and everybody knows about his disability, and that he sits there every day. And he's miraculously healed. What happens then, scene 2, Peter explains what has happened, and he says that it is through faith in the name of Jesus that this man was healed. Now our scene follows that sermon, and it describes for us the response of the Jewish leaders. These are men who refuse to acknowledge any connection between Jesus and this miracle. And I think the best way to unfold this text, I want to walk through it slowly. We're going to read a couple verses and I want to stop and talk about them and then we'll read a couple more. If you're taking notes, you notice there's no more blanks on the page. I'm just going to meander uh, with purpose through the text a little bit so you, you can follow along in that way. Again, we're going through this because if you are a skeptic, don't make the same mistake that these men made. And if you have crossed the line of faith, this story is here for you. To help you answer a basic question. What does it mean when people reject Jesus? What happens to God's plans? Are God's plans inadequate because there are so many intelligent, powerful, intellectual, uh, influential people who reject the gospel? Does that mean that God's plans are inadequate? Well, let's read here. We'll start with the first two verses of this this story. Acts chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. The priests and the captain of the temple guards and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now here are the main characters in the story, the religious elite in Jerusalem. They're the priests the captain of the temple guard, uh, the temple complex, remember this is a massive complex, had about 200 Levites and priests who acted as security forces, and they were there to make sure that everything in the temple happened uh, calmly and peacefully. And the captain of the temple guard was second in authority in the temple only to the high priest. And then there are Sadducees. The Sadducees were the political elite in Israel, they ruled. They controlled the the governing council, the Sanhedrin, which we're going to talk about in a minute. All the high priests were Sadducees. Uh, The Sadducees owed their authority to the Romans, and they wanted to make sure that everything happened so that the Romans were happy. They did not want the Romans reasserting their control, uh, taking power away from the Sadducees. The Sadducees also are uh, somewhat anti-supernatural. They don't believe in resurrection at all, which I've told you before, this is how you can remember them. They don't believe in resurrection, which is why they're so sad, you see. Okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. That's better than Scott's long joke. I'll just say that. If just that. <laughs> now, these are the main characters, and the text describes their hostility, right? Um, the word, the, the text says in verse 1, they came up. They were outside the crowd. They weren't listening to Peter and John, and they came up. That's an aggressive word as it's used in the Bible. They came up to them aggressively. These men are upset. They're disturbed. They're perturbed. They're frustrated. These are men that, hey, they thought they had cured the Jesus problem, but the Jesus problem keeps rearing its ugly head. They thought that when they crucified him 50 or so days ago, that, that he and his followers would just melt into the crowd like every other pretend Messiah. They're frustrated. You know what this frustration is like when you think you solve a problem and it keeps coming back over and over again. I've told you about my uh, ineptitude in fixing problems around my house. You know, the tool that I use most often in my house to fix things? My telephone. I call people and ask them to come and help me. Uh, uh, but occasionally... I try to fix things, and, and it's, frust- it's frustrating when it doesn't work. You have that faucet that leaks under the sink, right? You fix it one day, and you go back and look at it. Oh, man, it didn't work. I've got to try something else, or in my case, more duct tape. And I've got to do something else, to try to fix it, because over and over again, this problem just happens. That's what happened to these frustrated men. In particular, they're upset because Peter and John are proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of doctrine they don't believe in, and Jesus, the person they crucified. This is not what they have in mind for what should be happening in the temple. So they respond. Verse 3 says, they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. What does this mean? Not even four chapters into this book where Jesus told them to be witnesses all around the world, we're we're four chapters in and they're in in prison. This is not, though, a sign that God's gospel is going to be easily contained. In fact, that's why verse 4 is is here. Verse 4 is a report of how many people are believing just in case you think that Peter and John being in prison is a sign uh, that the gospel isn't going to move, you should understand Luke puts this in here. Oh, the gospel is growing. It's growing. In fact, 5,000 men in Jerusalem, not counting the women and children, are, are followers of Jesus Christ. They believe the message. That number, 5,000 men plus women and children, should remind you of another story in the Bible, right? How many people did Jesus feed? We're up to a few days in to the birth of the church, and already we, we're back to those numbers. Look, look at verse 4. But many who heard the message believed, so that the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. story continues. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? So this is a meeting here, an official meeting of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was in ancient Palestine, a combination legislative and judicial body. They were like the Supreme Court and Congress all in one. That was this official body. It was presided over by the High Priest. Uh, He was the one. uh, The Most important member. And then there were 70 other priests, uh, Sadducees, Pharisees, Levites, scribes, made up the Sanhedrin. Now, do you recognize any of those names here in verse 6? Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas. You maybe should recognize those two. Because those two were prominent men in Jesus' trial. And in fact, it's Caiaphas, I think, that Jesus was speaking about. In John chapter 19, Jesus is standing before Pilate, and Pilate is wrestling with, what is he, he going to do with Jesus? Is he going to crucify him or not? And he's going back and forth, and he talks about his authority, and um, uh, Jesus says to him, "You." in John 19, uh, nineteen, eleven, he says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And then he says, therefore, the one who handed me over to you Is guilty of a greater sin. Who is the one who handed Jesus over to Pilate? I think he's probably talking about Caiaphas here. Now the trial comes. Here, this is a trial before the body. They would sit in a U shape. So they put Peter and John in the middle of them. And the chief question, or the most important issue at hand, is over what verse seven says. Who gave you the right? By what power or what name? Did you do this? See, this Sanhedrin, these guys are the leading authorities in Jerusalem. They're in charge. Who told you, Peter and John, that you could do this? Who gave you the right or the authority to do this? It it certainly wasn't us. And we're in charge around here. Maybe not, though. Look what verse 21 says of Acts 4. We'll skip ahead. We'll, go, we'll come back to the story of it. Look at verse 21. Uh, Acts four twenty one. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. This is ironic. Who's really in charge here? The Sanhedrin say, Who gave you the right to speak like this? Because we are in charge. Only, Luke says, not really. See, the people, the people who were in charge. The Sanhedrin, they're afraid. This is always the way it is with bullies, isn't it? Or pompous people like this. If you're a pompous person, if you're a proud person, you need people to be cowed by you. You need people who are afraid of you. You need people that you can, in some way, convince yourself that you're better than they are so that you can maintain this illusion of actually being better so Sanhedrin is acting out of this illusion of power. Who gave you the right to do what you have done? Now, Peter responds in verse 8, and he <laughs> he responds by needling them. Oh, this is great. He says to them, basically, hey, he says, are we really on trial for healing somebody? I mean, we did a good... Is it against the law to heal somebody? Is that really why we're on trial here? Uh, And then he points to Jesus. Look at verse 8 here. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, at parenthesis, is that really why we're here, men? Come on. Verse 10. Then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. It's the third time that Peter has leveled this accusation. You killed the Messiah. He he goes after them. In the background of the book of Acts, especially in these first few chapters, there is this implication that this generation in particular, these men living in power at this point in time in Jerusalem, bear a special guilt before God. It begins, this, this idea in the book of Acts, begins with Jesus in the Gospel of Luke when he, when he weeps over the city of Jerusalem, and, and it continues in the book of Acts, these People in particular bear guilt before God. Why? Because the Messiah came to them. He presented himself to them as their king and they crucified him. If that weren't bad enough, after they crucified the Messiah, the apostles came and they imprisoned Peter and John. They stoned Stephen. They executed James. Guilt upon guilt is being poured on them. You killed the Messiah. And actually, this generation would bear special punishment from God in A.D. 70 when uh, the Romans came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. You crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. Now, this sounds exactly what was written about in Psalm 118. In fact, Peter quotes from Psalm 118 in verse 11. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. As Peter applies this verse, the Jewish leaders are the builders, and they have rejected Jesus, the stone, and God raised him from the dead and made him the cornerstone. Now remember where they are they're in the temple. They're in the temple, this massive... They're in the temple complex, this 35-acre complex that Herod built. Herod was a great builder, and this was his greatest architectural accomplishment. Herod built it not because he liked God. Herod liked it because he liked Herod, and he wanted a big building that people would remember him by. Massive building. If we were to walk into that building today, you would be astounded. How in the world did they build this without excavating equipment? Right? How did they build this without, without uh, uh, saws, powered saws? And how did they build it without mining equipment? And how did they build it without uh, forklifts and, 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 and bulldozers? How in the world? The, the cornerstone in the temple, the ancient temple, has been estimated to be one stone that weighs 50 tons. How did they build this building? But what, But notice here, God is working on a new building. It's a cornerstone that they don't want or they, ex- they don't accept. God is building a new temple. He's building a spiritual temple, and it, Jesus is the cornerstone. It's called the church, and this new temple is going to supplant their own temple. In fact, uh, their temple and their power is going to vanish, and Peter gets at that a little bit in verse 12 when he says... Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Salvation is found in no one else. Salvation is found in nowhere else. Not in this magnificent building that Peter is is referring to. Not in the name of any of the other high priests. Not in Annas' name. Not in Caiaphas' name. But only in Jesus' name. There is one person who has walked the planet who bears the title Savior, and his name is Jesus. There's no other priest. There's no other prophet. There's no other king. There's no sage, no philosopher, no scholar, no poet. Only Jesus. Now, this is an exclusive claim, isn't it? We live in a world that is somewhat intolerant of exclusive claims. But remember... Our claims of exclusivity, they don't rest on our brilliance. We don't say that there is only one way to God because we're smarter than everybody else. We don't say that because we figured it out and no one else did. We don't say it because we're Westerners, because we're white, because we're middle class. We don't say it because of our uh, 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 race, our ethnicity, our financial situation. We say that Jesus is the only way because Jesus said he's the only way and because there is no one, no one like Jesus. It rests in who he is. Uh, Now, John Stott here wants you to see how Peter has moved very quickly. He moves from the particular to the general and from the physical to the spiritual. And he does it very fast. Peter does. Jesus has healed in verse 10. He says, um, know this, all the people of Israel, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom be crucified, that this man stands before you healed. That's the word saved, whole, healthy. Jesus has healed this man physically so that he can walk. And this miracle is a pointer to spiritual healing. Physical healing of one man points to spiritual healing available for all people. Rescue, spiritual salvation, rescue from God's wrath because of our own sin. Everybody needs to be saved from a holy, righteous God. Who's going to rescue us? Who's going to save us? Jesus, only Jesus himself, and there are no other saviors. If you reject him, you have nothing. Acts chapter 3, Peter in his sermon, in verse 23, says, anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. There's no hope outside of Jesus Christ. We we, um, we were in Buffalo a couple of weeks ago. Uh, last week. No, uh, two weeks ago. We were in Buffalo. And one of the, the reasons that we always go to Buffalo every year is to visit Kathy's grandmother. And uh, Friday was her 95th birthday. She's ailing significantly. And um, she... For uh, the last 40 years, Kathy's parents have been talking to her about her faith in Jesus Christ. And for 40 years, she said, I'm good enough to go to heaven. My mother told me all good people go to heaven, and I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. And she said this repeatedly over and over again for, for 40 years. And we left her in the nursing home. We'll probably never see her again. And, and she has no hope. You pray for people like that differently, don't you? When our dear sister Jane Schertzer was ailing, right? Her body was falling apart, her mind was was gone, and we prayed that God in his mercy would, would take her because her suffering would end. How do you pray for, for my great-grandmother-in-law? Her suffering is about to begin. Because she has said no repeatedly to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look here how, how the Sanhedrin respond, uh, to Peter and John. They don't answer Peter and John at all. Uh, they're just astonished by them. Uh, how many times in the first four chapters of Acts does the Bible use the word astonished and amazed multiple times, right? Uh, people are just overwhelmed by these, these people. Um, Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John. Why courage? Why courage here? Uh, Peter and John have just been through a trial that was very similar. If you read the book of Luke... It's very similar to the trial that Jesus had. When Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin, they said, by what authority are you doing this? And Jesus said to them, "Uh, the the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus quoted Psalm 18. Jesus was asked about his authority. Peter was asked about his authority, and he quotes Psalm 118. (laughs) Uh, Peter knows what they did to Jesus, and he's doing the same thing that Jesus did. That's courageous. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Now, verse 13 is a verse that has often been spiritualized. It's that wonderful phrase, These men had been with Jesus. Don't worry about how much schooling you've had. All you need to do is be with Jesus and he will make you qualified to do anything in his name. Well, that's not quite how the verse is meant to be applied. Um, they just know that, that Jesus didn't go through any of their rabbinic schools either. Jesus wasn't a trained rabbi. Jesus wasn't an authorized uh, member of the Sanhedrin or uh, authorized priest, and boy, he answered every question he was asked just like that brilliantly. And Jesus has trained Peter and John really well. And they could, you would think, on one hand, they could have said, oh, these guys, they don't, know. They don't have the degrees that we have, they're unschooled, they're not, they, ha- they haven't written any articles, they haven't written any books. They don't know as much about as we do about the Bible because obviously they haven't been to the training schools that they should have been. They could have dismissed them for being anti or unintellectual, uneducated men, except they have this problem. There's this guy. He, he's there and he won't go away. And he used to lay all day begging, but now he's standing and walking around and everybody can see him. So what are we going to do about it? Verse 15, so they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them no longer to speak to anyone in this name. They don't even say it, do they? This name, that name. It's interesting. All they're going to try to do is silence them. They face a miracle they cannot deny, but they will not acknowledge its significance. What is going on here is not an intellectual problem, is it? It's a heart problem. They know without a doubt that this man has been healed. A miracle has happened. They won't acknowledge its significance. Do you know what's interesting about this strategy here? That's missing. Actually, it's missing from all the beginning chapters of the book of Acts. Why doesn't the Sanhedrin try to disprove the resurrection? Right? Why doesn't that come up? Because... Over and over again, Peter has been saying that because this man is healed and because the Holy Spirit has come, it's a sign that Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. They said over and over again, why doesn't the Sanhedrin or any of these religious leaders try and find the body? Because they could cut them off at the knees, couldn't they? Couldn't they silence Peter and John? Oh, (laughs) Jesus is alive. You think so? Look over here, boys, at what we have. See if you recognize that face. Why didn't they do that? Well, now Matthew tells us the official story that they were passing around, the religious leaders, they had said that the disciples had stolen the body. It was a story they made up. Interestingly enough, in this trial, they didn't pull it out here. And if they could have at all produced the body, the Sanhedrin, they could have silenced Peter and John. John. The Gospels tell us that Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who was himself a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. Don't you know that when Peter and John left the room, they all looked at Joseph and said, This is your fault! You and your stupid tomb! What's wrong with that thing? Is there a trap door somewhere? You know, what? why, why this is your fault, Joseph? Huh. Not everybody in the Sanhedrin apparently believed like they all believed. There were some, even among the Sanhedrin, who, who believed in Jesus. It reminds us. It reminds us. Reminds us. If you're going to adequately face the claims of Christianity, you have to deal with the resurrection. You have not adequately uh, pushed Christianity down or away until you have dealt with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a historical claim. Unlike any of the other religions in the world, the major religions in the world, Christianity rests on a historical episode uh, that, that the God of the Mormons could have revealed the Book of Mormon to anybody. Joseph Smith was not necessary. Allah could have revealed the Quran to anybody, though uh, Muslims believe that Muhammad is his greatest prophet. Uh, Allah could have used any other prophet, uh, any other person, to reveal his. Book two. And in no way do the claims of Buddhism rest on the actual existence and life of Buddha. But Christianity is about Jesus and his historical, that really happened in time and space, resurrection from the dead. And, and unless you deal with that, you have not adequately pushed Christianity away. I love what Wolfhart Pannenberg says. He says about the resurrection, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it is a very unusual event. And second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. People have tried to write over and over again the definitive book arguing why Christianity, why Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Time and time again, they've set out to write that book, and usually they end up writing a book that proves that Jesus did rise from the dead. Happened to Josh McDowell, happened to Lee Strobel, it happened to Lou Wallace. You know the name Lou Wallace? Lou Wallace was a Civil War general who did not believe in the resurrection, and after the Civil War, he set out to prove it. He was so overwhelmed by the evidence that he actually wrote a book, a novel instead, uh, actually about a young Jewish man who met Jesus and his life was transformed by it. It's a little novel, maybe you've heard of it, it's called Ben-Hur. That's not a movie? Well, it is, but it was a book first. And as it doesn't go without saying the book is better. Uh, The resurrection is the lens through which all the other objections to Christianity should be interpreted and evaluated. Follow me here for a minute. Um, The resurrection is just a few steps away from Christians behaving badly. If you think Christians behave badly and for that reason you're not becoming a Christian, well, let me tell you how the resurrection relates. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened after he was crucified, and he was crucified for our sins. Christians are not Christians because they have attained a level of perfection. To be a Christian is to admit that you can't meet a standard. You don't meet God's standards. You don't meet your own standards. You don't meet other people's standards. There's not a person in this room who is as good as they think they ought to be. You don't meet your own standards. You don't meet the standards of society. There are things that you do that, if we all knew them, uh, people would say, and then they would say them too. Uh, You don't meet God's standards either. Christians are Christians not because they have attained a level of perfection, but because they have admitted they desperately need a Savior who lived the life they should have lived and who died the death they deserved to die. To be a Christian is to admit this openly. Everyone's a hypocrite. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I own my hypocrisy. And he bore it for me. How does the resurrection speak to heartbreak? The resurrection is the exclamation point on the sacrifice of the God in heaven who gave his one and only son. Does God know what it is like to send a child to war and lose that son in the battle? How does the resurrection... Uh, speak to us about the cost of discipleship. It's the, it's the resurrected Savior who says, come and join me on the Calvary Road. And if we're conformed in such a manner to his crucifixion, we will also be conformed to his resurrection. It doesn't matter what objection you have, start at the empty tomb and work your way toward it. You cannot really grapple with the claims of Christianity until you face the resurrection. And again, remember these men in this story. There was a miracle they could not deny, but they would not acknowledge its significance. It's not an intellectual problem. It's a stubborn problem. It's a hard-hearted problem. They're fools. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. Why have you rejected Christianity? Isn't it more than merely intellectual? Intellectual? The sobering truth of this this passage is that your rejection of the gospel does not derail God's plans. God does not look down from heaven and say, oh, that person's not a Christian, what am I going to do now? Heaven does not collapse. Eternity will not fold in on itself because you will not trust in Jesus Christ. There will be consequences, though, for you to bear. Let's look at how the story finishes here, verse 18. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Lord willing, we're going to come back to this passage in a couple of weeks. Uh, this is one of the places in the book of Acts, Acts 5 is the other place, where we find the foundation for uh, Christian obedience to conscience as opposed to Christian obedience to the state. And we'll talk about Obamacare and all that stuff uh, in a couple of weeks when we come back to this. Well, it's, that's a direct application of, of this, this verse. And we'll come back to that in... Um, few weeks. We recognize God has established authority in the state, in the church, in the home, and he also has established the limits on the authority in the church and the state and the home. And we're going to talk about where those limits are. We'll come back to this passage. But notice here, who speaks for God in this passage? Who has the right to speak? Who is actually leading here? It's not the Sanhedrin. It's Peter and John. They must speak. Because God himself has commanded them to speak. They are bound by him. As I was reading this, I thought of a letter that, we got, uh, that I got this week from a friend of mine named Dick. Many of you know uh, Dick. He lives overseas. And he had a conversation with someone. He was talking to them about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And one of, one of the men he was talking to got really mad, quite upset with him about this. So uh, the conversation didn't end well and and Dick went back the next day to to try to to talk to him again about it and maybe smooth things over a a little bit. And and he said to the man, do you know why I have to talk to you about Jesus? Do you know why I do that all the time? He says, I am bound by God to speak. He said, if I'm right, if I'm right, someday you and I are going to stand before God and I don't want you standing next to me and turning to me and say you knew and you didn't tell me why didn't you tell me dick said i tell you because i am bound by god to tell you we're we're bound by him to speak even when it makes other people angry and in the end, these these religious, these intellectual, these intelligent men are powerless. They cannot deny the miracle that happened, but they will not acknowledge its significance. They're stuck. By their own choice, they're lost. And they will lose their power. They will lose their place. I wonder if, if you're on the same path that they're on. If If... if you're not a follower of Christ because you don't understand the gospel. I'll do everything I can to explain it to you. Over and over again, I'll try to explain to you this wonderful mystery of how Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again. I'll do everything I can to explain it to you if that's the problem. But if you're not a Christian because you're stubborn, because you refuse to believe, you will not huh, embrace the implications, the significance of it. I have nothing else to say to you except with compassion and conviction. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among mankind whereby we must be saved. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we confess to you, we read about these hard-hearted men. And um, Lord, we we confess that um, hard-heartedness comes at times to all of us easily. Father, we, we don't like some of the implications of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. But, but Father, we confess and we, we acknowledge that we don't like, we will not even like, like even more some of the other implications of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, like the fact that those who reject you are, are lost forever. Oh Lord, would you give us eyes to see if it's true, the statistic, those 11% of people around us who are longing to talk to somebody about Jesus Christ. And would you grant us courage like you did to Peter and John to speak Because we are taught by the Lord Jesus himself. Thank you, dear Father, that you are sovereign and that your plans are not overturned by our rejection of you. Heaven doesn't cower before a skeptic's complaints. You are, you are great and your son, Jesus, uh, will come back someday and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, that Jesus is Lord, and it will be to your great glory. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, saying, Amen. We're going to stand.